You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. Welcome to the Martha Zoller Show. It is always great to have you here with us. And joining me right now to talk about the number one industry in Georgia, which is agriculture, is Drew Eccles from J. Moore Farms. And Drew, I appreciate very much you being with us today. Good morning. Good morning, Martha. How are you doing today? Good. Now, I know you went to D.C. recently to lobby on behalf of agriculture. Tell us what you learned there and, you know, what do we need to be looking at over the next uh, couple of years related to agriculture? Well, that was, uh, I know you and I have been talking about coming on the show for a week or so, and and I mentioned to you that I was going to D.C. earlier this week, and and you said, why don't we just um, schedule this for when you get back so i really do appreciate the opportunity to be here i actually flew up with um georgia fruit and vegetable growers association and uh, i'm the president of that organization statewide uh we have a board we have an executive director much like a lot of other you know industry trade associations uh in the state and across the country but we were actually uh went up uh as members of the international fresh produce association so um, this organization uh, merged uh, two uh, entities last year and, and created this uh, International Fresh. And uh, it's a huge, uh, huge conglomerate. I mean, I know and I appreciate all of our local customers who know who Jay Moore Farms is, but when you get outside of northeast Georgia, sometimes it's hard to find somebody that knows Jay Moore. But this organization is actually full of, you know, the Delmonis and the Green Giants and all the big uh, Driscolls and all the big farmers from from all over the country and even all over the world. So there was a lot of policy talk being done. So what are the biggest challenges that you guys are facing right now? I mean, obviously you have the normal ones, weather and all of that kind of stuff. but, But, you know, there's a lot going on in the world that's impacting supply. So what? how is that impacting you? Well, so... You know, one, a lot of the things we were talking about um, at the uh, the forefront of, of all of our discussions was definitely it's definitely labor, uh, and that's always the case. And and our needs, what's really strange, and and a lot of people don't understand this, but our needs here in the southeastern United States is just much different from that of California and Arizona and New Mexico. And there's a lot of produce grown out there, so you know, there's a lot of um, illegal immigrants out there i mean there's a lot out here but there's a lot out there and and they work on those farms those farms and those state governments are a little bit more friendly to um to the illegals working on those farms so um you know that that's always it's funny you know that you got strawberry and peach growers in the southeastern united states butting heads with the same growers out in california you would think that we would get along over everything but Really, it's it's two different worlds uh, when we start talking about the West Coast. And, you know, obviously, I mean, we could spend our whole segment talking about that. But, you know, the biggest thing right now is this inflation. And we started seeing this um, really about this time last year. 
you know, we saw kind of supply chain issues uh, coming, you know, going through COVID and coming out of COVID and this and that. But we started seeing a lot of really steep price increases on input costs, on fertilizers, fuel, um, equipment, just everything going up about this time last year. And, you know, you always hear, what are they talking? I mean, I'm not an economist. What are they saying? Like 9 or 10% inflation? Is that is that the number we're hearing Well, now? it's up about 85 and it could go okay. higher from there, yes. So a lot of these input costs, especially fertilizer, is up, you know, 60, 70, 80%. And um, in some cases, on some special blends, it's double. Um, well, the truth of the matter is, is, you know, a flat of strawberries or peaches or, or whatever that we're growing up here at Jane Moore. I mean, we're not we're not getting that whole entire bit back, you know, that all of that 60% back. I mean, you, there's just so much that people are going to pay for um, fresh produce, and um, that's unfortunate. I mean, you're having to eat a lot of these costs, and it's really, really cutting into margins. And, you know, with farming, it's not that – the guys are out here you know you have good years and you have bad years and farmers are not when it's good it's pretty good but then you have bad years so you know i think in farming especially somebody in their mid-40s like myself you have to look at your whole career if you look at it year to year you'll drive yourself crazy so you know you're always putting back for a bad year um and and when it's good you sort of do have to take advantage of it but it is not cake and roses right now and you know, but people still have to eat. I mean, you still have to buy buy groceries. You've got to do that. I think that in some ways, people probably are making changes in what they're buying, but you've still got to go to the grocery store every week. You've still got to go and get what you need. I think where you're going to see some other problems are going to be in other parts of the of the businesses. And so it'll be interesting to see. Now, when is the ag bill coming back up again? That comes up every five years, right? Yes, ma'am, and uh, that that was that was the main uh, topic of discussion. That's going to be next year, and you can only imagine right now. You have every um, every segment of the industry right now is just really, really jockeying to get their needs uh, and their funding put into that bill. Um, you know, for your listeners, um, I, and I, I really do, I, I'm going to say this one more time, I appreciate being able to be here and, and tell the story of agriculture, but, you know, well over half of that um, farm bill is um, full of, you know, uh, free and reduced lunch for uh, school kids. Uh, it's also has a lot of uh, the WIC programs built into it. So, it's not just farm programs. It's not just conservation use programs. It, it's it's both. So, you know, that's the first thing that, that voters and, and citizens and taxpayers need to understand, that it's not just a huge package that's all this free money for farms. Um, but you do have, you know, you have the poultry industry and its wants and needs, and then you have uh, fruits and vegetables and you have cattle and hay and all the row crops. So everybody's jockeying right now. Probably the biggest ask for the fruit and vegetable industry right now is some help with the trade deal um, that uh, that we made uh, with Mexico a few years ago. Uh, we're getting a lot of produce dumped here uh, really, really cheap. And as you know, I mean, you report on it 
daily. The border crisis is, I mean, it's a joke, really. And there's drugs, there's fentanyl, there's uh, marijuana, there's methamphetamine. All this stuff is coming in, either getting smuggled in, you know, across the border with by foot, or they hide it in produce trucks a lot, a whole lot. And um, so it really doesn't matter if the tomatoes are only five dollars a box. Who cares if the if the fentanyl on the on the truck's worth ten million? Um, they can give the tomatoes away. So that it's just really, really unfair what's happening, and we desperately have to close that border down, tighten that border up. And I think that's even going to help with with our trade issues with with Mexico. Well, and getting back to the ag bill, what I think is really interesting is they put all that other stuff in there because they say that's how they get the urban votes. They get the, you know, the people that live in the cities, the congressmen that live in the cities. But everybody's got to eat. Everybody, it doesn't matter whether you live in a city in a high rise or you live out on a farm. Everybody's got to get their food from somewhere. And I think that what's really important about what you do, Drew, is that you bring light to the fact where does food come from? I mean, back in the old, old, old days before there was money, how people traded was by trading agriculture products. That was like money because everybody had to have them. Then money came about and you had this whole way that things were done over tens of thousands of years. But it is just amazing to me that you say you've got to encourage people that live in urban areas to vote for the ag bill so you got to put something in there that they can relate to. But I don't understand why people can't relate to the fact that agriculture needs to be successful, not only in America, but around the world, because it is the one thing you can't do without. That's right. And, you know, I think our society, we're, we are so productive and, and really we, we get a lot done. And, and the reason we're able to do that is, you know, the doctors, um, uh, they don't have to go home and unless they want to. They don't have to go home and milk cows or 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 take care of the the cows. The the factory workers they don't have to go pick up eggs after they get done with the factory. We you know we're we have streamlined society now to where you know less than one percent of our population feeds this country, and that's and that's a that's perfectly that that is a great um, situation. Uh, we just need to make sure that one percent is healthy and sustainable, and and those programs that are built into this farm bill, it, in the grand scheme, I've had to have a lot of people explain a lot of this to me, especially early on in my career. I mean, yes, yeah, sure, there's conservation programs, sure, there's safety net programs, but what those things are all about ultimately is keeping food and fiber costs down for consumers that, you know, maybe a farm gets some help with an irrigation project or something like that, but it drives down the price of food overall, keeps our prices lower, um, the, the industry prices lower. Um, so, you know, and I, man, I, as a Republican, I hate to talk about that, um, but it, but it really does. That's, that is, it is for the greater good. And, um, and we do have the, the most abundant, safest, cheapest food supply in the whole entire world. Absolutely. Uh, are there problems with, are, are there problems with farm bill? A- absolutely. Are there farms that take advantage of some of the systems, uh, some of the, you know, programs? Absolutely. But, uh, by and large, it works, 
and um, and it's a good thing for the American people and, and Georgians. Drew Eccles, Jay Moore Farms, thank you so much for being with us today. Yes, ma'am, Martha, I appreciate it. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Matt Brown's joining me, as he always does, from the Washington Post. He's covering Georgia on Fridays. and well, He covers Georgia every day, but he talks to me on Fridays. Uh, but, Matt, this is the big issue, I think, for the election is the economy. And, you know, I know that there are groups trying to poke through with different issues all over the place. But I just think at the end of the day, and I hate using that phrase, as you know, uh, it's going to be the economy. Right, definitely. So, yeah, I think that it's goes without saying that people's material conditions and how are they going to put food on the table and actually feed their families and support themselves is going to be just the root essential thing that folks are going to always be thinking about when it comes to an election. At the same time, it is important to note that there is a lot of cultural debates going on in this country at the moment. There's a lot of questions around what does the economy mean for people? Does it mean inflation? Does it mean social inequality? Does it mean um, do I do I have protections from from work and everything? Do I have proper health care and stuff? So but yes, like that is going to be and is always really what a lot of elections come down to, especially when the economy is not doing as well as we've seen in the past couple of weeks here. So this week, um, Glenn Kessler, who I've had on the program a number of times, he's called the fact checker at the Washington Post, wrote an article called Stacey Abrams' rhetorical twist on being an election denier. This this article is causing reverberations, not just in Georgia, but around the country, because there did seem to be this different carve out for Stacey Abrams and the rhetoric that she had related to her last election. But it seems like Glenn isn't buying it anymore right definitely i think that the 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 money paragraph from glenn's um very good piece that i think everyone should check out is is that he says quote abrams played up claims the election was stolen until such tactics became untenable for anyone who claims to be an advocate for american democratic norms and values and i think that that's that really just gets at it where stacy abrams in a lot of ways since 2018 has pointed out you know there was, there was this like issue with the election system and i and i was frustrated by this thing that brian kemp did so i think that i'm the legitimate winner or that brian kemp's only the quote-unquote legal winner of the election as opposed to the true winner and that since 2020 when the questions over the validity of elections have obviously become a lot more you know, in question and and under con- and under contest, as Donald Trump has has launched his own campaign, um, claiming that he actually won that election when he didn't. This, this has become a very bad look for Stacey Abrams. That it's something that she has not been able to really square the full hole on. You know, just earlier this um, this month as well, when she was talking to. Um, you know, myself and others at the Washington Post, when we were going and asking candidates if they would concede the election, they said yes, but that also they were going to have a serious caveat to that, that they were going to make sure that every single vote was counted. So a, a bit of a hedge that if that they will accept the out, official outcome of the election, but that they're not going to necessarily accept that until they make sure that every avenue that they can possibly make sure that people's votes are counted have been exhausted. And I think that that just shows a, a, a tension in Abrams' message here, that she's a champion for democracy at the same time, that, that she does have some genuine distrust of the democratic system in Georgia. Well, and again, as Glenn pointed out, there's really no data to back up what she's saying. And that's what has finally come 
in full circle as far as everything that's happening. So, you know, look, I I think it's going to be a very interesting election. And I do think that Brian Kemp continues to do well, although he had a little bit of a blip last night related to the Rivian deal. Uh, which I don't know that that moves that many voters, but it's the, been the first bad news he's had in weeks. Okay, and I mean it's been weeks <laughs> since the governor has had a bad headline. Right, definitely. the The Rivian case is, is interesting because it it takes on the the question of of, of can Kemp really cut through NIMBYism and everything, and, and is he able to actually bring these businesses through the model that that he's put through, and and can he be the the pro-business governor that he said. As you said, I don't know that the Rivian case is going to be the thing that moves thousands and thousands of voters in Georgia, but you only need to move a couple thousand voters for it to be a, a nightmare situation in, in this polarized of a state. So let's talk about the Senate race a little bit, and I want you to tell me if you think I'm totally off base. I feel like a couple of weeks ago that uh, the Warnock campaign was kind of in the place where they were overplaying the negative hand. And even though it wasn't all Senator Warnock ads, the average person doesn't know the difference between a pack ad and a campaign ad. If it's an anti-Herschel Walker ad, they think it's coming from Warnock. And I think he had overplayed it a bit. But I think that the Herschel Walker non-answering of it has sort of put the ball back in Senator Warnock's court. And we've seen it in polling that while it's still too close to call, it's moving around a little bit. No, I think that that's definitely been the case. And some of that is always just the, the, the sort of people coming home after Labor Day to, to the parties that they usually vote for in polls and everything. But they, there has been serious movement here. As, as you said, Walker's campaign has gotten a lot more disciplined over the past couple of weeks about what message they're going to put out for their candidate, how they're actually going to respond to some of the, the attacks that Warnock's putting on and some of the scandals that Walker has experienced. And, and also, yes, like Warnock and, and many Democratic aligned groups across the, the state and country have, have gone live in Georgia for weeks now with attacks on, um, on Walker for, you know, his past. His, his stances on abortion, his his comments, um, his past with his ex-wife, for instance, and and all these things, and and those are those are stories that voters will have to grapple with. But when you when it's every other ad on television and every single ad you get on YouTube, pe- people can get a little desensitized to it, where they say, "Yes, I know that he had children that that uh, that he didn't disclose previously," or "I saw the ad with his ex-wife," but but what does that mean anymore? What what more you got for me, you know? And and that is, I think, the thing that. Warnock's team is, is having to grapple with at the moment where they say, did we actually define him with all of that? Or, or is now the, the good, good old son of Georgia image that Herschel has always had really coming back after you were able to throw all this mud at him? For and Matt, I got to tell you one thing that's really funny because it's, I think the Warnock campaign has too much money because when I log on to Words with Friends and I get a Raphael Warnock commercial, it makes me mad. When I log on to my <laughs> workout video on YouTube and I get political commercials of any time, it makes me mad. I understand people have got to monetize things but it's like oh my gosh there is they're everywhere and you can't get away from them right no and uh, that's that's the state of living in a battleground state at this point especially when as walker's fundraising emails will always point out warnock is one of the highest fundraisers in the country for for democrats he he doesn't need to have 
um, you know, other Senate PACs come in for him because so many Democratic donors from all across the country, small dollar donors, large dollar donors, are all interested in giving to him and his campaign. You can see how that will how that can potentially backfire sometimes. Like I'm thinking of 2020 right now, though, when, for instance, when Chuck Schumer went all in and his organizations went all in on funding the campaign to defeat Susan Collins in Maine, for instance, and and that actually turned out to be a blowout for Collins, basically in that year when everyone thought that she was totally a goner. And when you interviewed voters after. After the fact, voters said, I just didn't believe these ads after a while. I was totally oversaturated with hearing how Susan Collins is the most terrible person in Washington. And I just stopped tuning. I just started tuning them out and stopped believing them. And I think that there is always a risk in campaigns of you potentially overplaying your hand here. And, and that's something the Warnock campaign has to be very, very conscious of as we head into the, the last four weeks of this campaign or so. So what are you working on right now? I am taking a serious look at the voter mobilization strategies for all of these campaigns and everything, as, as well as how different voting rights organizations across the state are mobilizing or mobilizing actors and whatnot, and how, like, you know, like Kelly Loeffler, for instance, has, like, a voting rights and election security group that, that's going across the state and everything. So the, the, as people are really ramping up into October, you're seeing a lot of folks are also still engaged in persuasion, but I've been following around candidates and, and, and organizations all through Georgia this week actually, and, and really just engaging with them on, on how are they making sure that, that folks are actually even getting out. And that's, that's what this is, as we're getting down to the wire here, what it's turning into. Another part of that that I was paying attention to that, that was interesting when I was at the state election board meeting earlier this week is, is these questions over voter challenges. And, and, and because of some of the reforms that happened in the Georgia Election Integrity Act of last year, you've now been able to see it so that just basically any person can come and challenge any number of votes um, that they believe might be illegitimate or or improperly registered. And that has been, you know, a major issue in Gwinnett County. We're going to see on Monday that election board is going to engage with those issues again. Um, it's been a major issue in a lot of other counties around, around the state and even the country with some of these new laws. So the question of, of voter purges and, and challenges to um, voter registration is something that I'm also keeping an eye on as we really get down to the wire and say, all right, who's voting? in this election right now. What does this electorate look like? October 11th is the last day that people can register to vote. Early voting will start on the 17th, I believe, and we are going to be running from now until Election Day. Matt Brown from the Washington Post. You can follow him on social media. You can also follow all the things that he writes, and we appreciate you checking in with us every week. Thank you for being here. Thank you. It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Bill Crane is joining me right now for Crane's Corner. And, Bill, you know, we have this announcement that happened today, and I know we usually only talk Georgia politics, but this announcement today that we're going to have 125,000 refugees this year that we're going to allow. Now, in light of the fact that the administration is in denial that we're having about 250,000 a month coming over the border. It just seems like the right hand does not know what the left hand is doing or the right hand does not acknowledge what is going on in the left hand. Immigration reform is one of those issues that has been sort of on the docket really for the better part of 35 years. The last major congressional action was in 1986, the Immigration Reform Act of 1986 which took the number of aggregate legal immigrants in the nation to a million and had this kind of wackadoo formula on which countries get which. And we really haven't abided by that, and we've used executive action on the part of both parties 
to waive those numbers and set them aside for political refugees, for uh, natural disasters. And the only you know, kind of upside to it right now is we still have a labor shortage, particularly in, on the frontline jobs that a lot of people no longer in America want to do. Um, and we need help, and whether we're talking about agriculture picking fruit or helping hotels get their rooms turned for the next set of guests. Um, but, but we do have to have secure borders, and we have to have a system in place that makes it particularly worthwhile for those who obey and follow the rules to become naturalized U.S. citizens. And so it's, it's a ball that keeps getting punted down the field. Democrats, when they're in charge, tend to want to open the borders and bring people in with the assumption that they're going to convert them to voters at some point. doesn't always happen. Republicans, depending on which part of the country, if you're a border state, view things a little bit differently. But Florida has... You know, a multitude of immigrants coming in across, you know, a variety of channels and, and people that have been there their entire lives who are exiled from Cuba. And they're not a captive of either party. So kind of the conventional wisdom that Latinx and we're just coming off Latinx, uh, Latin Heritage Month, um, vote monolithically is untrue. And the, the Republican Party in particular is making some pretty significant inroads there in places like Florida and Texas. And Well, Myra Flores, uh, who's the new congresswoman who was elected in a special election, and then she is going to be on, um, uh, she's got to run again in November because it was a special mm-hmm. election. The Republican woman, uh, born in Mexico, naturalized citizen, first time that's ever happened. She had a town hall the other night where basically these looked like regular folks that were just saying, you know, we've always been conservative. We've always, you know, been working class kind of people and it's, and, and that we got ignored by the Democratic Party and so now we're voting Republican. And I think what's interesting about it is I love the fact that votes for, uh, are up for grabs. I think that you ought to fight for different votes. But what's interesting about this whole labor thing is that that with this, the bottom line of this, whatever the numbers are, two and a half million for this year, whatever it's going to be, you can't absorb that number of people. Yes, there's a labor shortage, but those folks aren't going to immediately assimilate and start taking jobs. It's going to take time to get them there. I was in Lexington, South Carolina for a funeral a couple of days ago, and we tried to get lunch. And you're right about the labor shortage. We went to three different restaurants that said, I'm sorry, we're 45 minutes behind because we're short-staffed in the kitchen and in the wait staff. And that's in a fairly small town in a state that's doing really well. So it's it's a very interesting time right now. Well, I would also add that you've got uh, people that have been here multiple generations who don't even refer to themselves anymore as Mexican-Americans or Cuban-Americans. They just call themselves Americans. And I right. live in DeKalb County. And pretty much in any direction you look for my house, you'll see a Stacey Abrams sign. I'm not criticizing that. It just happens to be the reality. But there is a very prosperous man who lives down the street. I won't call his name out, who uh, has been having rehabbing and, and uh, flipping homes for 10 or 20 years. I've been in this neighborhood for 15 years. And he has two homes next to each other on the corner. He's got his mother in one of them. He is Me- Mexican-American heritage. And there are two camp signs in those front yards. So... Uh, I see, as you do, at ground level, uh, people who come here from another country who succeed, who kind of bootstrap their way up, and who want basically the opportunity to succeed, particularly working middle class, Latinx voters who are probably Catholic, are migrating towards the GOP. It may not be all of that in polling data yet because those databases aren't as good and pollsters often are not bilingual, but it's definitely occurring. 
Well, and I think that also we have now the campaign is ramping up. Um, Governor Kemp has had a lot of big-name people come in, most notably uh, Governor Glenn Youngkin from Virginia. There have been a lot of things happening. Stacey Abrams' campaign, I, I guess she's doing the same things, but it doesn't seem she's getting the coverage. And, again, she's in trouble, kind of like, uh, you know, I think it was 2012 when Hurricane Sandy happened. Uh, then all of a sudden all the focus was on uh, President Obama and and Romney was kind of out of the news. Now, granted, that's that's presidential level, but right now, Ron DeSantis is getting a lot of news. Uh, Governor Kemp's getting a lot of news because he's preparing for this hurricane and the rain that's coming in. And it makes it more difficult for their challengers to get airtime. My uh, column this week on accesswdn.com talks about how we're in the final stretch, which we are. You know, we're less than a month away from the general or just under a month away from the general election, which will be the first Tuesday or second Tuesday in November. We'll have early voting starting in about three weeks. And what you have seen over the last two months is a pattern settle in in both the Senate race and the governor's race. In the last seven polls taken by credible national polling organizations, Governor Kemp has led his race by from two to 11 percentage points, uh, with the average being six percentage points, which is outside the margin of error. But more importantly, in all but well, in all of those polls, he is over 50 percent unless you subtract out the margin of error. And what's really critical is the undecideds in all of those polls are all in single digits, with the highest being 8%. So if you're above 50% and your opponent has 40 or 41% and the undecideds are 8, you've got to pick up all of those undecideds, the 1% of the libertarian vote, to win. And the undecideds will split. They won't necessarily split in favor of the incumbent. They typically don't, but they will split. They won't all go in one camp. So... There's a path for Stacey Abrams still, probably through the debates. There's a possibility, obviously, of, of something that could happen, the, the old October surprise. But Governor Kemp, to me, looks very safe for re-election and potentially in double digits. And Herschel Walker bested Raphael Warnock in those same seven polls, three out of the seven, with Senator Warnock winning four out of the seven. But the margin was closer. And Senator Warnock is out polling Stacey Abrams on a percent basis in all of those polls. So what's Settling in as one race looks like it's settled, the other may be in a runoff or be a walker victory. But voters don't jump from one column to another in the last 30 days, typically. And the patterns have been setting in, in part, because there's been so much of an assault on the airways. You and I have talked about this before, some of which I believe is backfiring. And people have been seeing ads, you know, since June. And you'll now start to see the down-ticket races form. But the other thing that's happening there, if you're a Republican is you're going to be benefiting from some pretty long coattails from the top of the ticket. Well, and Senator Warnock is, you know, he insists upon in his official account for his Senate office, he calls himself Senator Reverend Warnock, okay? He wants everyone to know he's a reverend. And and I know that all these attack ads against Herschel Walker are not from his campaign, but people don't understand that. They associate all of them with Senator Warnock. I think he's gone a bit too far, and it just is unseemly for somebody who's a who's a reverend to be going after somebody about past attacks, as horrible as they are. I think, in a way, Herschel Herschel is kind of presenting himself as the sunshine and puppies person because he doesn't. Yeah, have I would much be money. if I were Warnock, I'd be running the puppy ads from the first campaign again. Yeah. I I was at an event um, night before last in Atlanta. 
and they had it was a restaurant, and they had the large flat screens as you're you know become almost ubiquitous in restaurants these days. And I was there for about ninety minutes, and I wasn't watching the TVs, but you could obviously they were in the background. And about six times in less than an hour, I saw the Herschel Walker ad with his ex-wife Cindy with the close-ups that you know clearly by their ages and faces was taken decades ago. Now, if they had former wife Cindy um, Walker today making some allegations about Herschel Walker's conduct or saying that there was a continuing problem, I think there'd be an issue there. But it's an interview that actually was from Dateline more than a decade ago, some, some, somewhere between 10 and 15 years ago. I believe the book was released in 2004 with Cindy and Herschel Walker both trying to highlight the challenges of mental illness within families and couples and sharing their story, including some really rough parts, to help people. It yes. wasn't yes. an expose. It wasn't Cindy uh, going on the air to talk about what a horrible person Herschel Walker was. It was her sitting beside her husband saying, there was a point at which he held a gun to my you know, head. And, you know, that's horrible to hear, and I'm sorry that it happened. But they obviously had come to a healing place enough with it to sit down and do a television interview together, and they still are, you know, co-raising their children. So, yeah, I think it, it's, uh, it's, it's a tough ad to watch. But I just think the uh, the hundreds of thousands of times it's aired, it's backfiring, particularly among African-American men who have had crosses with law enforcement and other organizations over the years that don't, you know, that question their integrity based on one or two bad choices, look at that and go, that could be me. Yeah, I think that's part of it. And also, I think that people are just, it's too much. You know, sometimes you can have too much money. Sometimes you can have too many negative ads. And uh, I think that they they started too soon and it's too much. Now, I could be wrong. I could be completely wrong about this. But I do think the better Brian Kemp does, the better Herschel Walker does. There are those split voters. There probably are some of those split voters out there. But I don't think they're as much as the Democrats are hoping for. The only danger I see at this point for Governor Kemp, and it would be kind of the reverse of a Hail Mary, if there's a direct or indirect request by Donald Trump for his supporters, who still exist, and were about 25% of the GOP base in the primary, to stay home. He didn't do that directly during the Senate runoffs in 2020, but indirectly by not focusing on those runoffs and focusing on the uh, rehashing, if you will, of the 2020 November election. 400,000 Republicans did sit out those runoffs, and it cost the Republican Party two Senate seats. And that's really the only danger I see for, for Brian Kemp between now and November the 8th. Absolutely. Bill Crane, your columns are at Access WDUN. We look forward to reading them every week, and we appreciate you being with us today. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Bye-bye. Putting the talk in news talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Joining me right now is Theron Johnson. Theron Johnson is Democratic strategist. He's also my colleague on the Georgia Gang and my friend in life. So, Theron Johnson, welcome to the program. How are you? It's always good to be with you, Martha. I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. So, listen, we're having, you know, a lot of challenges getting Democratic candidates on the program. We've talked to the state school Mm -hmm. superintendent. We talked to um, Jen Jordan early in the campaign. Uh, We've got requests out to everyone else. And, of course, we've had Senator Ossoff, who's not running, on a number of times. But we're going to keep trying. But we're going to let you stand in today (laughs) for (laughs) a lot of these candidates that we haven't heard from. what, you know, what do you, first of all, give folks an overview of this Democratic ticket, and then let's talk a little bit more about it. 
Well, Martha, I think you'll actually see more Democrats actually uh, come on this show, which, yes, I mean, we know your audience um, primarily is a conservative um, group of listeners. Um, but also, I think that you've done a fantastic job of actually being fair um, to all candidates. And you really ask tough questions to Republicans. You ask tough, tough questions to Democrats. And so I think you'll you'll see a change in that very shortly. I think. People have heard um, how reputable you are and, and how fair you are in your interviews. Um, the reason I come on whenever I can and when you ask me to is because I think that as Democrats, you know, we, we've got to make sure that we're very bold and specific about who we are. Uh, we are a big tent party that believes in a lot of things that most Georgians care about. Where we probably disagree with Republicans on most things is how do we pay for it uh, and what's sort of the pathway to actually um, getting the legislation passed and how is it going di- to directly uh, affect the state budget or the federal budget. Um, but, you know, look, we cannot win races in Georgia by only talking to our base. And I think all the Democratic candidates on the ticket statewide right now understand that. I think it's also uh, important that, you know, we take advantage of, of shows like this one um, to have really open conversations and dialogue with a Republican like yourself, a conservative, who's not always just fell in line with the establishment. I mean, there have been many things that you and I have disagreed on, but there have been some things that we've actually agreed on. I've watched you and heard you stand up to folks in your own party about your beliefs. And so um, at a time where we know that Republicans right now in the state of Georgia are all um, but one race uh, are polling ahead of the Democratic candidates. Senator Warnock is, is polling ahead of Herschel Walker, but... If you go all the way down from the gubernatorial race uh, down to all the uh, people who are running, uh, Republicans are, are leading in those in the current polling. And so there's a lot of ground to be made up uh, for Democrats. And I think the way we do it is uh, we, of course, motivate our base. We go to independent white men and college-educated, college disaffected, suburban white women and tell them um, how we can build this coalition to try to be victorious in November. Yeah, and I think that it is about getting out and look you've got to do things to shore up your base but it's getting kind of late for that right whether you're a democrat or republican you shouldn't be having to shore up your base at this point in time you should be reaching out to whatever the seven percent undecided or the whatever the number is and i think that i mean you've run a bunch of candidate a bunch of campaigns at this point in the campaign you should not be shoring up your base am i wrong about that well, I think both sides are doing that, Martha. So let's talk about what – and you can confirm or deny what I think <laughs> is going on on the Republican side. Um, from what I've heard, Governor Kemp um, is shoring up his base of Trump supporters, right, many of whom actually who stayed at home in the last uh, 2020 and 2021 election, right, primarily because the former president encouraged him not to vote. Um, and so when, so when we say short of the base, I think that the governor is spending a lot of his time doing that because his governing posture has been, since he's been governor, trying to move more towards the middle. Uh, now, he did go back towards his base uh, and had to really kind of um, sort of become, come out really strong on some conservative issues because he was running against former Senator David Perdue. So when I say short debates on the Democratic side, look, it's more about making sure they turn out. I think Democrats, when they vote, they're going to vote Democrat, right? Like most Republicans, 45-plus percent of them are going to vote. So it's about, when we say short debates, making sure that the enthusiasm um, on our on our side is there. 
However, if you look at the ads, and I was on the flight, uh, shout out to Delta, uh, with uh, Senator Warnock yesterday after our traveling to D.C., and if you look at the ads, I mean, Senator Warnock is talking about working across the aisle, how he's gotten ranked as one of the most nonpartisan, uh, I'm sorry, one of the most bipartisan senators in the U.S. Senate. Stacey Abrams is saying, hey, I work with Nathan Deal, and I work with Republicans to get things done. And so the paid advertisement, Martha, is definitely directed at shoring up the middle and the swing voters and the independents, right? But the other paid sort of ground game work, I think, is focusing on making sure that the enthusiasm is there for turnout. Yeah, and I think that's the, I'm glad you mentioned the enthusiasm factor because, you know, that's the, that's the big thing anyway. I mean, that's what we, that's why we lost the two Senate seats in 2021 is because there was a lack of, there was concern, enthusiasm, whatever you want to call it. They didn't get back out to vote. And so you can tie that to that. Um, but, but the bigger thing that we've got to do, we got to get all our voters out. I think that, both the Secretary of State's race and the governor's race is going to get some crossover votes because all in all, Georgia's in a pretty good place economically. You're going to have some people that don't want to rock the boat and that they're going to vote um, Republican, at least on Secretary of State and governor. There might be some split votes. I personally believe that Senator Warnock has gone a little too far. And again, I understand most of the negative advertising is not being paid for by him. But as you know, when you're dealing with super PACs, people don't understand all of that. We understand where the money comes from. But the average person thinks if it's an anti-Herschel Walker ad or if it's an anti-Raphael Warnock ad that it's put out by the campaign. That's what the voter thinks. So um, it's I think he may have gone a little too negative for a guy that is Senator Reverend Warnock. But I do think that it's going to be close, and it's all going to depend on the governor's race, how the Senate race ends up. Well, Martha, that's why, you know, you and I, people think that sometimes when we are in the, you know, in the midst of campaigns, we're not people, right? We don't have compassion and we don't have a heart. And that's why you have done such a great job of of not only being so respected within the Republican circles and working for, for, you know, for uh, governors and former U S senators and even ran for office yourself for, for Congress and been a long time respected commentator on TV and now radio um, is because you know what you, you're actually able to understand the emotion that goes into voting. And so while I respectfully disagree with you to that, uh, Senator Warner has gone too far. I do think that, the negative advertisement that I've seen, uh, and I've not seen everything, but I've probably seen the majority of it, uh, is necessary because most of it, and not all of it, are things that Herschel Walker has said. It's, it's actually using his own words. It's using things that he has claimed to have done, and they're just highlighting that there's, there's some discrepancies. There are some things that are not true. There are some things that just don't add up. And so I think that how the ad is produced is it a little maybe kind of uh, mean and dark? Probably, but it's not like the campaign or the outside organizations are making up information about a man who is running as a Republican nominee for U.S. Senate. But I think you'll see a switch because he is a senator. He is a pastor. Um, he is a man of the people, he being Senator Warnock. And I think you'll see the campaign shift in the next uh, five weeks to really closing a closing argument about why he is more qualified, why he's better to continue to work all Georgians well, and, in, in, in the U.S. Senate. And I'm really looking forward to the debate. I think that's the one debate. Yeah, I think debate, you'll see a, yeah, you'll see a good debate. 
I think it's going to be a good debate. And as I pointed out on the gang this week, you know, the challenge that Senator Warnock has is his expectations are high. And the the benefit that Herschel Walker has is that they have low expectations of how he's going to do. So there's there's really more risk. You, I think initially there was more risk of Herschel Walker debating Raphael Warnock. I think Raphael Warnock, the senator, has more risk right now uh, in this debate scenario. But it'll be fun to watch. Well, I think Herschel real quickly has um, some risk too, Martha, because if you look at the polling that we're seeing, I, I've said this on the gang too, um, is that, look, he's clearly getting a little bit of a bump because I believe most Republicans are saying, you know what, we are more, we're more concerned about Republican control in the U.S. Senate than we are uh, who the person that's running. However, if he's getting this gang and he's sort of getting this little bit of a bump in the polls, do, does he run the risk of actually going on a debate and not doing well at all and losing that momentum? So I think it's a risk for both candidates, but I do think that Senator Warnock will clearly shine, will do a great job. <laughs> and you're right, Herschel has done a phenomenal job of saying that he's a country boy, and, and I guarantee you that Herschel Walker can buy more nice suits than Reverend Raphael Warnock because we know he's done very well for himself with the millions and millions of dollars that he's made. And, you know, I'm, I don't like success shaming people. He definitely has worked hard to get that money. Um, but, you know, he said he's going to get embarrassed. And so this is, whether it was intentional or strategic or not, he has definitely tried to lower the expectations for himself. But I think that the people of Georgia are going to be in for a treat. And I think they're going to see a clear distinction between these two gentlemen um, um, when, when they debate. Theron Johnson, thank you so much for being with me today, and I'll see you soon. All right. Thanks, Martha. To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com and you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.